Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss, and I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. I have a super fun show for you today, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet Fiona Barton, the best-selling author of the thriller Local Gone Missing. She talks about training journalists in a war zone, making the leap from journalist to author, and much, much more. That's later on. We'll also get to know Daniel Paisner. He's one of publishing's most in-demand ghostwriters. That's the writer who actually writes those celebrity biographies that sit on the front of the racks at your favorite bookstore. His latest novel, Balloon Dog, is a provocative, comedic, tender, and contemplative book on middle age, social media, art, and belonging. And it asks, what happens when the life you're living is no longer the life you imagined? That's later on. First, let's get to know Jeff Burroughs, drummer of the multi-platinum-selling and multi-Juno award-nominated rock band The Tea Party. They'll be returning to Canadian stages this summer with their first tour in almost three years. The tour follows the release of The Tea Party's Sun Shower EP, which is a companion piece to the 2019 EP called Black River, which they say presents a message of hope in the face of one of the most challenging years we as a society have endured so far in the 21st century. Let's get to know Jeff Burroughs. You did conservatory piano for four years. Why then did you switch to drums? Well, um, I always wanted to play drums. And I think my parents figured that a good way to get into, um, you know, maybe percussive arts would be to learn a little bit of theory and learn a bit of melody and so on and so forth. My father was a drummer. And I think he always looked back and thought, you know, if I had a, a modicum amount of, of idea of how progressions go and, and melody mixes with this and that and so on and so forth, it might be helpful. And, and to be honest, I didn't even know he played drums at that point. <laughs> and I think in the back of their mind, uh, they were like, I don't really need the, the volume in the house at this point, but eventually they succumbed to the, uh, the whims of my 10 uh, year old self. So <laughs> doesn't your father have an incredible collection of drums or, or in snare drums in particular, right? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I, on the way, I, I just got to Toronto today and on my way up, he, uh, he retuned and checked over my, my Ludwig black beauty for me. Amazing. And he was pretty excited because he just got rid of a bunch of other snares. He's only, in, he's only into Ludwig snares now. And then the vintage Ludwig kids. Mm. <laughs> it's pretty fantastic though. He does so much like, so he's a retired cop, um, became a lawyer after he retired and um, now he's retired, retired. And all he does is, is this type of stuff. And then if anyone in the Windsor, Essex County region needs anything, he says, bring it over. And he doesn't charge anything. He's, you know, he's, he's a pretty incredible guy. And he's got all of these leads now, he even started a, a number company in order for him to get a discount from some of the Florida dealers that send up <laughs> these, these little nuts from 1954 for $100 a piece. I'm like, dad, you but he's, he's, he's loving it. And, you know, you can't complain. I mean, he's, he's a great guy and, and a master at, uh, at that type of stuff for sure. Well, from him, even though you weren't really aware that he was a drummer uh, at first from him, I think you got kind of a, a swing style that you use in your rock drumming. And I think that comes from listening to your dad's like, you know, 
Buddy Rich and all those kind of albums, a very different kind of style than you might have heard uh, from John Bonham or Keith Moon or, or somebody else that you might think would be a more likely influence for you. You're right there. When I was younger, he had this album. It was uh, Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa, and it was one of the dueling drummers. Wow. And one of the tracks was called Jumping Out the Woodside, and it always blew my mind. I'm little, and I'm just like, I don't even know what's happening here. <laughs> it's just, it's fantastic, right? So I, I grew up with that style, and um, once my dad once I found out my dad was a drummer and he pulled out these old drums that I had never seen before and started listening to him, it was a lot more of the 50s, 60s, kind of between swing and rock. Like when you listen to the Elvis stuff and you listen to even some of Ringo's um, straight patterns, there's always that bit of a swing in there. And I, I grew up with that. And I grew up with a lot of snare fills and a lot of, you know, five stroke roll sort of fills leading into that. And it was really old school for a guy my age then when I was 10, 11, 12. And then the older I got, obviously your Bonhams and your Peart's and everything came into play. And John Bonham, as you mentioned, um, he's probably the swingiest of all rock drummers. He's got that, he's really behind the beat. I'm still very behind the beat. Um, Neil, of course, was right on the beat and almost mathematical. Um, which was wonderful. And that's the beautiful thing about so many different drummers is everyone is so very, very different. And, and when you hear their backstories, it's always interesting. So thank you for bringing that up because that's exactly where that really came from is, is my dad and, and all of his buddies that would, you know, play together and, and so on. So. Well, it's been 30 plus years since the first Tea Party album came out. So let's just transport ourselves back in time then uh, to then. And what were the goals for the band in those days? Um, I think goals change uh, over the years and, and over the months, really. But we, we always went at it quite um reasonably like we we'd we'd say okay we're we're it's summertime Uh, we have a lot more time off now let's try to get from windsor to london to toronto and back to windsor so a thursday night then a friday night saturday night and then a sunday matinee back in windsor and we do it on a tank of gas and and our red van and our nbcds and and that was goal number one uh, goal number two, of course, was to try to land a record deal. But what had happened in the meantime, uh, when we were playing the the smaller clubs in Toronto on Front Street, we would do these shows. And on our way back one time, we're literally just onto the 401 heading out of Toronto and uh, 102.1 uh, was playing Save Me at two in the morning. Uh, and we couldn't believe it. And all of a sudden, we started getting phone calls and a gentleman by the name of Jeff Kulowick, who was in charge, or maybe one of the reps at that time, of Warner Chapel Music and publishing side of things. And he got a hold of us. And then all of a sudden, we had different offers. And it was unreal. I, I, I was going to be a teacher, you know, <laughs> I was pretty, I was, I was excited either way. I mean, I had a, a great girl still with my great girl. Uh, I was just looking forward to anything that was going to happen. And then when this happened, I think I was more excited than my, my wife was. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, the, the teaching thing went down the drain, but um, yeah, goals, goals. Then I think we were pretty pragmatic about it. We, yeah. we, we went about it step by step. 
Um, we were our own agents. We were our own manager. Um, we used to go to all the doctor discs and sunrise records and we would have our little sheets and we would present them. Okay. Here's a, here's 12 CDs for you guys or, or eight or cassette tapes. Yeah. And then we would come back the next time we were on the road, like two weeks later, we're playing at, um, uh, call the office in London or something. And we'd stop by the two record shops and see the manager. And he's like, we sold out. And we're like, this is great. We got gas money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they, they grow in, they, they grew incrementally. Uh, the, the, uh, goals. Do you ever miss those days where uh, everything was very hands-on right at the beginning? Everything seems like it's possible. You know, and then when it gets bigger, it changes, right? It's not necessarily worse. It's just different. You're 100% right. And there are some great things. And then there's other things, like you say, you wish you had more hands on. But one of the problems is, is you literally run out of time. Yeah. Uh, because gone are the days where you're tracking your record sales on a on a clipboard with paper between, <laughs> you know, Windsor, Chatham, London, right. Sarnia, Toronto, <laughs> etc. And now you're doing more interviews, which at the time was the greatest thing ever. I can't believe I'm in a band and I'm, I'm talking to Richard Krauss and I'm still, I'm still flabbergasted by that. Honestly, it's, it's like, I'm just a guy from a small town who, you know, loves to write with his friends and, and we get to do this stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it, I do miss the hands-on, but that's one of the things we, we did get is we were able to produce self-produce. We didn't have to bring in anyone else. Um, it, they, they were pretty free reign. Well, the band really has, to my estimation anyway, always walked its own path. You know, there is an unmistakable sound that the Tea Party has, but it has changed over the years. More flavors and accents have been added to it. Uh, and it always seems to me that you guys have done what you wanted to do and not what perhaps record companies were whispering at you to do. Yeah. Uh, and you nailed that as well. That was one of the, the great things they let us get away with. And I don't know if it was because of, well, now that we can look back at that whole nineties rock era mm -hmm. um, with, I mean, you know, the hip leading the charge and then your Our Lady Pieces and your I Mother Earths and your Headstones and your Moist and your Treble Chargers and all these great bands. And we were this ridiculous fraternity fortunate right. enough to have each other's backs and we we were always we were always uh i don't want to sound off-putting but we were always a lot more different than than many of them mm -hmm. but everybody did have their own sound i mean the headstones hardcore yeah. rock and roll in your face moist very melodic very soothing very sexy you know our lady piece quirky and weird and but poppy it, everybody had their own flavor but I think we took it maybe a little bit further than everyone else with uh, everyone else with the exotics and and um, I guess more esoteric lyrics and so on and so forth that Jeff would come up with. So it's been 30 plus years. How do you do it? There was a little break for six or seven years. Uh, but is it like a marriage when you have three? You've known one another since you were kids. Uh, yeah. how, how has it lasted this long? Um, well. Once once we got back together after that hiatus, as we shall call it, mm -hmm. um, we really, really learned how to communicate. And and I, it, it, it really did suck. I, I don't want to make any misconceptions about this. That was just a horrible time in my life, especially the first year, because what, what you end up doing um, is and, and 
you know, uh, it's it's a smaller level than than big big bands. But no matter what I would do if I came back from a a tour or came back from recording or a writing session, that was the only questions. Even my closest family members, my dad or my mom, how did recording go? How does this go? Not not how are you or not how is yeah. this or and it was such an identity and it was almost an identity crisis. Like no, this is what I am, but. I realized after that year that there's so much more to each one of us. And I don't want it to sound hokey. It, it took a lot of, it was, it was a, like a year young, a year long existential revelation. Like, mm. what am I doing here? Really? Like what, everything that I had ever done in my adult life has revolved around this. I mean, we changed our honeymoon date. We changed our wedding date. I missed my first Christmas with my new wife. Like, it was it, it was all encompassing and when it just came comes to a crashing halt it it's quite difficult and i i mean i mean i'm an ambassador for the canadian mental health association now <laughs> but boy i could have used them <laughs> do you know what i mean i mean Absolutely. it's just like the, the 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 rug is swept from under your feet yeah. i mean and i had everything to do with it as well i'm not blame, there's no one to blame each one of us we're like, you know, this, this got to stop. And I thought it would be fine. Everything would work itself out somehow. And, and honestly, it, it just hit me. And, and my wife reminds me now and then, like, you know, I, we've got three wonderful kids, boys, they're all adults, big adults now. And, and sometimes I get hard on them or something. And she's like, look, they're a lot like you because you wear your emotions on your sleeve. You, you know what I mean? You, yeah. you think too much about what other people think of you and, and just stop worrying about things. You, you know, you have toured and worked with everybody, uh, from like Ozzy Osbourne to Roy Harper to Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, it goes on and on. Do you have any, uh, like road stories that or memorable gigs that really stick out for you? Well, the, the page and plant show we did in Montreal, we were the last two bands to ever play at the old forum in Montreal. Wow. So, and my wife was due for our son number two. And I was like, Oh no, don't, don't. <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the shrine of my youth. Like Gila Flirt played here. Gila Point played here. Yvonne Cornwaye, Ken Dryden, all these Steve shot. I was losing my marbles and, uh, and Paige plant, of course. So, we got to play with them, met them, hung out with them at Buenonote after the, the show. They gave us advice. They said, don't worry about this, that, and whatever. Playing with um, ACDC and the Stones at the SARS Festival was amazing because <clears throat> at that point, our manager, who was Steve Hoffman, he was, he was dying of cancer and he couldn't make it. And he's the one who kind of showed us you know, how to get back, how to be, try to be charitable and so on and so forth. And I really took it to heart. And um, so I got to, I made a plan. It was kind of double edged because I could do a charity work and I could meet my heroes. Mm. So I spoke to all the tour managers and, and I got them to allow me to speak to the drummers and ask them if I could have the pairs of sticks that they use for the show and get the band to sign them. And I was going to auction them off for a charity in my hometown called Transition to Betterness. So that was great because it worked out really well and the show was phenomenal and it, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, we've played in front of, 75,000 people before that, but it was always just kind of straight out. Whereas I started playing at the stars fest and I looked out and I was like, wow, just looks like every other big festival, no big deal. Then I looked to the left. I'm like, Oh my God, 
there's another whole big festival of people over there. You look over here and there's another hundred thousand over here. I'm like, what is going on? And wow. you can literally see the tempo of, of one of the songs we were playing going on. It was the best, but you know, we got pictures with the stones and you know, it just one of those amazing, amazing things. And then touring with Roy Harper and sharing stages with nine inch nails and Lou Reed and, I mean, you name it, Faith No More. It's just incredible, right? Incredible. So lucky, fortunate, and grateful. Thanks so much for this. This is great. Thank you so much, Richard. What a great time. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you soon, man. Thanks. Take care, Paul. Bye-bye. That was Tea Party drummer Jeff Burroughs on The Richard Krause Show. Find out all about the Tea Party's Canadian tour at teaparty.com. Later in the show, we'll meet local gone missing author Fiona Barton. We'll tell you all about it just a little bit later on. Before that, we'll get to know Daniel Paisner. He's one of publishing's most in-demand ghostwriters. He's the writer who actually writes those celebrity biographies we all know and love. He's been the voice in print of Serena Williams, Steve Aoki, John Cash, Whoopi Goldberg, Denzel Washington, Ray Lewis, and many, many more over the course of his career. We'll talk about the ins and outs of being a ghostwriter and Paisner's latest novel, Balloon Dog, a provocative, comedic, tender, and contemplative book on middle age social media art and belonging we'll tell you all about balloon dog a little bit later on in the show first though we're talking ghostwriting with daniel paisner who joined me via zoom from new york state i want to ask uh, about a quote that i saw of yours where you have said i've always thought of myself as a writer was that when you were five years old on up or, or at what age did you realize you wanted to be a writer I'm probably not five, although I do have very specific memories as an eight or nine year old of of creating a neighborhood newspaper with a buddy of mine whose whose mom happened to be the uh, school librarian. So she helped us circulate that under door jams around town. But probably by the time I was in high school, I had thought that this would be my path. I had no idea what that might mean. <laughs> uh, I was uh, I graduated in the late 70s. So I kind of came of age as a reader during the era of Woodward and Bernstein. Mm. So I suppose I wanted to be a swashbuckling journalist and investigative reporter, and I worked in a newsroom for a while. So I had no idea what that writing life would look like, but it felt to me like a pretty cool way to, uh, to make a living. And what kind of writing were you doing in this newspaper that you started when you were uh, in high school? Oh, you know, like who didn't trim their hedges or whose dog was pooping. You know, it was silly. Eight, whatever news filtered down to our eight-year-old editorial board was what was what kind of made it in. It was mostly benign silliness. Maybe we'd interview the mailman and ask him probing questions like, how long have you been delivering mail? Or what's the worst weather you've ever delivered mail in? You know, stop the presses, baby. Yeah. Although I like the worst weather question. You might be able to, you, you still, you can get something good out of that, I think. You think, you think I can get a book out of that, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the ghostwriter. We'll talk about that in a sec. I'm sure okay. you've done more with less. I probably. Um, so <laughs> you mentioned uh, Woodward and Bernstein. Tell me, though, uh, about Norman Mailer and his books and how they inspired you. I studied Mailer when I was in school. I, I read pretty much everything he wrote. Of course, I came to it late to the party. It's always nice to read um, these influential writers in the moment mm. that they're writing. So I, I was a little bit late to it. However, the exception to that was Executioner's Song, which I guess I read in, in real time when it first came out. He wound, yeah. wound up winning a Pulitzer Prize for that. What most people forget 
uh, or most people don't even realize if they haven't read the book, is that really is a ghost-written piece of work. Mailer was brought into that project deep in, um, in the interviews that I, I believe the uh, producer's name was Lawrence Schiller, who had been right. tailing Gary Gilmore uh, for months in preparation for doing a documentary about uh, his life. And uh, Mailer was kind of brought in at the 11th hour to turn that into a narrative. And in fact, he cast himself as a character in the book later and wrote about when he was brought in to, to do that. And it was really the first notion I had um, of, of what it would mean to write someone else's story. Um, and I obviously wasn't thinking in terms of doing that myself, but mm -hmm. I kind of filed it away for, uh, for later. Well, there is a real difference between ghostwriting a book and then writing someone else's story. So I've written thousands of profile articles about people. They're in my voice, but written about another person. When you're ghostwriting, though, you are creating the voice, I would think anyway, maybe I'm wrong here, I've never ghostwritten a book, but you're creating the voice of your subject, you're trying to make it seem as though these thoughts are, are their own. Uh, so tell me a little bit about toggling back and forth between writing your own work, which is very much in your voice, and then figuring out how to write uh, in the voice of whoever your subject may be when you're ghostwriting a, a, a biography. Um, it's a tricky balance. Uh, of course, the thoughts are their own. What's, what's, uh, what I'm inserting is, is sort of structure and pacing and voice, establishing their voice on the page. Yeah. I don't put ideas in their heads or, or words in their mouth, although you know, when I do complete a thought for them, people speak in unfinished sentences. I'm sure I'm doing that here in this interview. So everybody um, does it. So part of my job is to fill in those blanks. And I do make certain assumptions. You're listening to David Paisner on The Richard Krauss Show. His latest book, Balloon Dog, is available wherever you buy fine books. However, it, it all goes to them for their review and revision and ultimately approval. And once it, it passes their desk and is kicked back onto mine, then even if I did come up with a line or two to complete a thought, once they sign off on it, it's it's their line and, and their thought. So I don't think of it as, as me supplying their thoughts so much as, as giving them voice and giving shape to that voice. As far as balancing it with the, with the work I do, it doesn't always work out great. I'm sure, you know, when I was working on Willard Scott's book, I came across as a good old Southern Baptist when I was working on my fiction later that night. And right. I'm sure when I was, you know, uh, working with Whoopi Goldberg and, and we were talking about her one woman show, I, um, some of that voice might have um, seeped into the work that I was doing as myself later on. So you can never entirely shut off one valve in service of the other. One of the things I found that I was good at uh, it's not anything you can really study or learn. I was good at mimicking people on the page uh, in much the same way that Rich Little, that might be too old a reference for your audience. Canadian, <laughs> Canadian. We, he, Rich Little's from Ottawa. We will Is take he him. from Ottawa? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. National hero. So, yep. you know, I was good at, at impersonating people. If, if they would give me a paragraph, I could find a way to to capture those rhythms and that tone and that sensibility over the course of 300 pages. Mm -hmm. And so I've been running with that gift for the last 30 something years. And how did you uh, come across the idea of being a ghostwriter? When did that first present itself to you? It was a happy accident. You know, I didn't set out to do this. 
I, uh, I've spoken uh, over the last year, I started a podcast of my own. I, t I talked to ghostwriters about the art and craft of ghostwriting. Mm -hmm. And what I find almost universally is that nobody sets out to do this kind of work. Right. It is, it is a writing of a last, not, not a last resort, but it's a second resort. It's on mm -hmm. second thought. Um, and this kind of fell in my lap. Actually, what Willard Scott, I already mentioned Willard Scott. I was, um, I had uh, somebody at Simon & Schuster who knew I wanted to uh, write for a living. And they said, you know, we just signed Willard Scott for a book. He's at 30 Rock across the street in Midtown Manhattan. Why don't you go over and see him? And if he likes you, you can go ahead and write his book. So I went to see Willard, middle of the day. He poured me a bottle of Jack Daniels. Um, we sat around and chatted for a bit. He poured me another uh, glass of Jack Daniels. And by the time I stumbled out of there, I was working on his book. I was a kid. I was 26 years old. I had no business. I mean, Willard was a big star then at the Today yeah. Show. And uh, it was a good gig. And I had no intention of, of rolling from that gig into another one. But it happened. There weren't a lot of people doing this kind of thing back then in the middle 1980s. And um, so I kept at it. And here I am. What do you think the lore of the celebrity biography is? You know, I think people want to pull back the curtain a little bit and see a little bit more of these stars, whether they're athletes, actors, politicians. They want to see a little bit more than you get in the five-minute soundbites that you'll see on the on the nightly news. When you think about the books you like to read, Richard, it's 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 a very intimate transaction between author and subject. You know, they um, they relax, they unwind, they let their hair down. Um, I I read a lot in a bathtub. I read in in bed. I read on the toilet. You know, the, you sort of strip down, strip away all the walls right. that you have, and you can be a little bit real. So I think readers are looking for that. Of course most of what is put out into the world is kind of slick packaged and polished in a way where it doesn't really uh, come across as real. It's it's a rehearsed version of who or that person mm -hmm. is. But every once in a while, you find somebody who's willing to go there with you and to sort of break down those walls and open up something and reveal a deeper truth. Well, let's talk about Balloon Dog. Uh, so yes, sir. Uh, people are familiar uh, with uh, the Jeff Koons sculpture of the Balloon Dog. If I was to take you into my living room, you would see one, a small one sitting on my uh, coffee got, table. In there. I've got one on my shelf back yep. there. So people, <laughs> people know what they are. Right. Uh, and the, this book is sort of based in and around that. It's an art heist gone wrong. Uh, tell me, about uh, this did what what's what's the 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 stem of the idea what's the seed here before i tell you that i'll tell you a funny exchange i had last night because it's kind of relevant you know i have a lot of writer friends and and i've been sort of crowing about my book trying to beat the drums and get attention for it online and one of them reached out to me and said you know when i first saw the jacket of this book with the balloon dog on it and with my name on the cover, he said, I thought you'd just written a memoir of Je for Jeff Koons. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, so this is not that. <laughs> the idea of this book actually has, has um, its root in, in a very real moment. Uh, I was uh, staying at, at the home of a friend of mine, uh, his brother, actually, and he had a fabulous sculpture. Uh, it was not a Koons sculpture, but it was on his front lawn, and it was kind of kinetic, almost like a mobile, and it, it was exposed to the elements, and it had to be moved every winter because of 
um, because of the weather. And we're all sitting there and we're having this drunken bacchanal and nobody's really paying attention. And these guys, this moving crew shows up and says they're here for the sculpture. And we just kind of wave them along. And we're sitting there watching and yep. taking selfies. Nobody thinks to call the owner of the house and to vet this idea um, and to see if these guys are legit. And in that moment, while we're calling him, I'm thinking, you know, what a great jumping off point for a book where you, you have a world famous sculpture that's worth you know, millions and millions of dollars that sort of lifted in plain sight in the middle of the day. Um, what would happen if you set all those wheels in motion? So that was the germ of the idea. And alongside that, I thought it was an opportunity once I decided to use this very familiar and iconic sculpture um, as uh, sort of the hot potato here, the hot rock uh, in this story, um, was for an opportunity to reflect on the nature of art. Who decides what's meaningful? You know, I write all these books for other people. I make, a, I make my living doing that. But what I really want to do is, is to be a novelist. And I can't make, a, I can get my books published, but I can't get orthodonture for my kids. I can't get, stay ahead of the mortgage based on those royalties. Yeah. So who decides what's good? Who decides what is going to have an impact on the culture? And this balloon dog sculpture seemed like the perfect representation of that because it means so many different things to so many people. It depends on what you bring to it when you're looking at it. Well, it's interesting because I was thinking about how ubiquitous this is. And I don't know why it's really connected so much. There was something kind of whimsical about it. We've had ours for years. But now I just, I, I walk past him and I, I had to think whether it was still there or not. Right. <laughs> because it's just, it's just been there for so long. I don't know what it is about it. I mean, it, I guess it does speak to our, the innocence that we carry in childhood. Maybe it mm -hmm. brings us back to that. It's, it's simple. It is what it is and it is nothing more. And um, you bring to it what you what you will. You know, when we look to use the image on the cover, somebody at the publishing house was concerned that, you know, it might be proprietary and we might need to secure, you know, um, permissions to yeah. use it. But but in fact, you know, there are carnival barkers all over this country right now weaving little balloon dog animals for kids. And it's ubiquitous, like you said, and there's no way you can copyright something like that so it's fair game and off you go this is not meant as an indictment of coons who's done some wonderful work and he's really uh, put his fingerprints on the american cultural landscape it really was an opportunity i peopled this story with a you know frustrated middle-aged jewish writer who mm -hmm. can't get people to read his books and <laughs> and and i wanted him to be left scratching his head wondering what the hell he's got to do to get noticed in the kind of way this balloon animal gets noticed. You're listening to Daniel Paisner on The Richard Krause Show. His latest book, Balloon Dog, is available wherever you buy fine books. And it's a, it's a very pop culture book. You, you quote classic rock songs, there's Facebook lurking in there, there's all sorts of, of elements there uh, that are, I think, probably ripped from your life, my life, everyone's, you know, everyone's life. Popular culture is the culture that touches us. And I'm always interested to see how that filters through in other people's art when they're creating stories or writing books or whatever. Uh, what is the pop culture that matters to you? And I, I think very much it might be classic rock. For you. It, well, it's it's up there. I mean, yeah. that kind of informed a lot of the the moods of each chapter. Car carry a, a lyric, a familiar snatch of yeah. lyric from a classic rock song, and those it's meant to sort of uh, signal 
the mood of the room as we're going through the motions of the next pages. I did face an interesting choice in writing this uh, because I, I wanted my book to be very much of the moment. However, we live in interesting times and it was problematic for me. I wrote this book at the front end of the COVID mm -hmm. pandemic. It was my little shutdown lockdown project. And I decided I, I really didn't want to set the book in these pandemic-y times right. because I didn't want it to be about that. Um, however, I wanted everything else that was going on in the world. I wanted the specter of Trump looming uh, over your friends to the south. Uh, I wanted uh, the world as we otherwise knew it to be very much a backdrop to this piece. So I set it as close as I could in the near present, like 2018, I think it is, is the post-Trump pre-COVID era. And and the pop cultural references, the social media references um, uh, were meant to uh, hopefully be universal. You say you don't want this to be a pandemic book, don't want it to feel like a pandemic book, but there's an idea in here that seems to me, I mean, it's it's millennia old, the only constant is change. But I do think that during the pandemic, when everything changed, and all our lives were kind of turned upside down, that we started thinking about change in a in a in a slightly different way. And that I see as one of the themes from the book. And perhaps that was uh, a, a result, an unconscious result of writing during a pandemic. Well, I think you're probably right. And that's a sharp observation. And, and there's no getting away from the fact that this book is certainly COVID adjacent. I just didn't want COVID itself to be a character in the book because it would have informed and manipulated so many of the plot choices you need to make as a novelist uh, as you move your characters around the world that you create for them. But I think as a theme, you know, these themes of isolation and belonging uh, and wanting to matter and wanting to find connection um, and meaning in the world around, I think there's a through line to all of those, to what many of us were experiencing during the front end of this lockdown period of our lives. I also think <laughs> that uh, the art created during the pandemic, much of it, uh, television shows, movies that featured people wearing masks, uh, is going to age poorly or it's going to become kind of like a, a, a time capsule of some sort, but it's going to get tucked away because there is nothing that anybody wants to watch less, I think, than a 90-minute movie or a television show where everyone's running around wearing a mask. Unless, in fact, the book is about the pandemic. Mm -hmm. you know, it, then, then, of course, you might not have that concern about how well it will age if you want to write something about right. this moment Very from, much within, from yeah. within this moment. Yeah. But if you're looking to write a romance or a meet-cute story or, or something uh, that would be an evergreen subject uh, at any point in the last 20 or 30 years, then a mask gets in the way of that. Then the six feet uh, distancing gets in the way of that. Um, and I think that will be dated or stale or obvious when you read this two or three or five years from now. You can find David Paisner's book, Balloon Dog, wherever you buy fine books. Apart from being a novelist, my next guest today, Fiona Barton, has worked as a senior writer for the Daily Mail, a news editor for the Daily Telegraph, and also as news editor for the Mail on Sunday. 
After an award-winning career in British newspapers, she gave it all up to volunteer in Sri Lanka and since 2008 has trained and worked with exiled and threatened journalists all over the world. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. It's fascinating. She has also penned four worldwide best-selling thrillers, The Widow, The Child, and The Suspect. She returns to bookstores with Local Gone Missing, a new crime novel featuring Detective Elsie King investigating a man's disappearance in a seaside town where the locals and the weekenders don't exactly get along. Fiona Barton joined me via Zoom from England. You were a reporter for 30 years. Why did you decide to take a step back from journalism in 2008? Well, uh, because I've been doing it for 30 years, I suppose. (laughs) I think I was ready for a change. Um, And we, my husband and I had talked about doing voluntary work um, when we retired and uh, we got to our fifties and thought, why are we waiting? You know, it's, um, we're well, we're healthy. Our kids are old enough. Our parents are young enough. So um, it was um, an opportunity that we took uh, and uh, we're so glad that we did. We went with uh, VSO, Voluntary Services Overseas, to Sri Lanka. And what sort of work did you do there? Well, I was training journalists uh, under the wire. Um, It was, uh, it's a very dangerous place to be a journalist, always has been. Um, And uh, so I had to be very discreet. But um, yeah, that's what I was doing. I was training um, Tamil journalists. Were there any close calls? Did you ever feel unsafe? Well, the civil war was still on uh, when we got there. So uh, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, there were armed um, militia on every on every street corner, etc. And I was denounced at one point by uh, somebody who said that I was a Tamil sympathizer. Um, But it, you know, it was it was pretty uh, chaotic in the country, thank goodness. And my name is very difficult um, because Fiona, there is no F in the um, Sinhalese or Tamil alphabet. So my name always came out as something weird like piano or something else yeah something else so yeah luckily but um no I mean you know I wasn't in danger it really it was it was the journalists I was working with you know they were people were being murdered and tortured and kidnapped with impunity um yeah terrible times for them not much better now, unfortunately. No, no. The, it, it is interesting how you know, the more things change, the more they seem to stay the same. Oh, I know. So depressing, isn't it? Yeah, just when you think things are going to be okay. <laughs> what do you think that you took away from your 30 years as a reporter and brought to uh, your fiction? Well, <laughs> as it turned out, um, I think I'd been doing an apprenticeship for this for a long time because I was a general news reporter. I, you know, I I wasn't a specialist. I didn't do health or politics or, um, and so I had been talking uh, to ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances for all that time. And uh, that's pretty much what psychological thrillers is all about. So I had this wonderful cast of characters that I brought with me. Um, but I also brought some terrible bad habits. Um, uh, like what? Well, if you're a reporter, you tell the story in the first paragraph. And that's not so good for a thriller. So <laughs> I had to learn the drip, drip, drip. I had to I had to learn how to write long. I mean, you know, I'd written, 
I suppose I'd written, you know, maybe 1500 words max on a, you know, on a feature. So suddenly to be faced with 80,000 words, it was like Everest. And I can remember I used to watch the numbers click round at the bottom of my screen. (laughs) It was so sad. But uh, yeah, so I did have to unlearn that. Um, But I did keep a lot of my style, really. I mean, I don't think you can put that aside after all that time. So well, short sentences. Right. Short sentences, which is a newspaper that, that is part of writing in a newspaper uh, and punchy. There's no wasted words. You have to. Try you, not to. You try not Kiss. to. Anyway. That's it. Kiss. Keep it short and sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Or as we say <laughs> over here, it's uh, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. That's oh. <laughs> Oh, mine's much more British. You're listening to Fiona Barton on The Richard Krause Show. Her latest book, Local Gone Missing, is available wherever you buy fine books. So reporters are reliant on other people's words and ideas. How tough was it to transition yourself to invent these characters and to put words into their mouths? It was so tough, so tough, because everything I had written before that was grounded in not just reality, but had been checked. And, you know, it was all other people's words. So as you say, so I really struggled with that. Uh, And in fact, what I decided was, you know, I'm not writing science fiction or fantasy. um, So I can ground it in reality. Mm. And uh, so I, I do, obviously, I invent, I invent the storylines, but the people, I do, you know, reach the bits and pieces from you know people I've interviewed people I've met people I've watched um so yeah I'm afraid I I I can't just go on a flight of fancy um I find it very hard do you think that the journalist in you is somehow represented by your main character in the new book uh, local gone missing uh detective Elsie King both professions you ask lots of questions you follow the story wherever it goes I wonder if you're seeing a little bit of yourself in that character I guess so yeah as you say we're cut from the same cloth she wants to know and in this book she's off sick so she's not doing it officially in fact she shouldn't be doing it but um so I've got her with one foot in each world really you know the amateur um well, the unofficial yes. uh, investigator and, you know, but with fantastic detective skills. Do you know how the book's going to end before you begin writing? It's been different for me for each book, to be honest. The Widow, I knew exactly what the ending was. In fact, I wrote it. I wrote uh, the first nine chapters and the ending. Wow. Um, that was the first thing I did. The Child, second book, uh, I thought I knew and... Uh, it just wasn't hanging together properly. So I rewrote the whole second half of the book, 40,000 words. So no, I didn't know. Uh, And that was quite exciting. Um, Labour intensive, but exciting. Uh, The suspect, again, I thought I knew the ending, but I did go back and forth on it um, because it's tricky. Mm -hmm. And uh, Local Gone Missing, um, did I know? No, I don't think I did, actually. Um, Not completely. That unfolded, which was nice. You know, as I wrote, I let the characters unfold. The one that I'm writing now, I do know. Um, I think I do anyway. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) 
You'll know when you get there. Change. That's right. Right. Uh, Fiona, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to speak to me today. No, it's been lovely. I really enjoyed it. That was Fiona Barton on The Richard Krauss Show. Her latest book, Local Gone Missing, is available now wherever you buy fine books. A big thanks to Fiona for joining me. Also, a tip of the hat to Daniel Paisner. Find his darkly comedic novel, Balloon Dog, at fine bookstores everywhere. Also, big thanks to Jeff Burroughs, drummer of The Tea Party. Go see The Tea Party on tour this summer. You can find details at teaparty.com. Of course, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) 